Well, we're taking a little break from second uh, from First uh, Timothy chapter two today, and then next week you will have some other speakers. We're going to be away the following week. After that, two weeks from today, we'll finish up that section of uh, chapter two in First Timothy that deals with men and women in the church and the pursuit of godliness by both men and women in the church. Today we're looking at a passage, actually several passages in the Scripture. Remember, the Bible is its own best interpreter, and that's why we read Pat. We'll have a main text, we'll have supplementary text, we'll have other references throughout the course of the sermon, so you can get a, a, a view of what the whole Bible says about a particular topic or how other passages shed light on the main passage. Um, It's also a lesson today in how Scripture is progressive. Now, I I don't mean that like we often use that word progressive today in the political sense. Scripture is not left-wing, progressive in that sense, but Scripture is progressive in this sense that A theme starts early in the time of Scripture, early in the time of God's work in the the world and redemption, and then through time that theme grows in Scripture. It grows from Old Testament to New Testament. It grows even in the New Testament and ultimately reaches its epitome, its highest point, that theme, uh, with the coming of Christ, with the second coming of Christ. And Today's message is is actually going to be an example of a theme that starts in the Old Testament and grows through the New Testament and points us forward uh, to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Our text today is from John's Gospel, chapter 12, 9 through 19. So let's turn there in our Bibles and read from John 12, beginning at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And here we end this reading of God's Word. 
something has happened recently that caused all this great excitement. We often focus on Jesus, what we call Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, into the temple when he is uh, proclaimed the King, the Son of David, uh, the Messiah. He is, he is welcomed in the name of the Lord. But what has caused, there's been an event that took place a few days before this that caused much of this excitement and got the attention of so many people, and that was course, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, family that had befriended Jesus and believed in Jesus, though with somewhat imperfect understanding at times, the Gospels tell us. And yet, Lazarus was a man that Jesus loved. When Jesus heard that Lazarus had died, he went, well, he didn't go right away. He actually waited a little while and then he went. He had heard that Lazarus was sick. He, he waited. He went. Lazarus had died. The Bible tells us that when Jesus looked at the tomb where Lazarus was laid, and he, it was pointed out, here is where we laid him. There's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Also tells us uh, something of the human side of Jesus, the human nature. He was He's fully God and fully man. If he, I, I almost misspoke myself. I said he was fully God and fully man. No, even today, he is fully God and fully man. There was a multitude of people who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. And because of that, many people put their trust in Jesus, acknowledging Jesus as the promised Messiah that God would send to save his people. Perhaps, again, they had somewhat mistaken understandings and imperfect understandings of all that that meant, but nevertheless, they trusted in Jesus, and they proclaimed him to be the son of David, the coming king, the one who would come in the name of the Lord. Jesus, a few days later, nears Jerusalem. The excitement is still very much there. And there's excitement on one side and great dismay on the other side. The Pharisees, who have been growing in their antagonism of Jesus, now, because of Lazarus, because he has been raised from the dead, and this story cannot be hidden, it cannot be passed over by ABC, NBC, CBS, and all the rest of the alphabets. This story is out there, and it is gaining attention. And the Pharisees go so far as to begin to plot to put Lazarus to death because of the fame that has come to Jesus Christ because of this. And and they say among themselves, look, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world is going after him. Gives you a, a little idea, again, of the, the rejoicing, the anticipation on one side, the dismay, the despair on the other, and the hatred as well. So that day comes when Jesus approaches Jerusalem. Crowds hear this. They come flooding in 
toward the city. And as he goes up toward the gate of the temple, they begin to lay their cloaks on the ground and cut branches from the trees and lay them on the ground, and they begin to sing or chant or call out certain phrases from the scriptures. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus was not riding on a beautiful white stallion, a a horse fitted to a conquering king. He was coming lowly, humbly, sitting on the colt of a donkey. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But he did this in order to fulfill a messianic prophecy. And again, reinforcing this excitement, reinforcing what what, uh, the people were saying, because the scriptures had said, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This identifies Jesus even more. This is a man who raised Lazarus from the dead. This is a man who who has healed many, many people. This is a man who is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Of course, they didn't call it the Old Testament. The biblical, scriptural prophecy. And as he draws close, they call out. Now, where are they finding these words? Well, we're going to look at these words in three different settings. Remember, the progressive nature of Scripture. The first area, the first place we find these words is in Psalm 118. Then we find them when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the people saying those words, quoting from the psalm. But Jesus says something about the future that also refers back to the words of Psalm 118. So let's turn back to our uh, our other passage, Psalm 118, and we're going to look at, uh, in brief, I w- wish we could spend more time because it's a beautiful and powerful psalm, but it does take a, a little way, a while to, to read it, digest it, figure out what's going on in this song. So turn to Psalm 118. You'll notice, just scanning very quickly through this psalm, the first verse and the last verse of this psalm are the same. The first and the last verse, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's a command. It's not just a statement about God, but it's a command to worship God. It's a command to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because his steadfast love, his love that cannot be broken, the love that Paul wrote about at the end of Romans chapter 8. That love cannot be broken. That love is what stands behind his covenant promises. That love has has guided the people of Israel all through their existence as it continues to guide the church today and sustain the church today. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It's a call to worship. It's a command to worship the Lord. 
the psalm begins and ends with this command. And the use of the command at the beginning and end tells us that this should be our response to the story that the psalm tells. It goes, the psalm goes on to tell a story. This should be our response. This is what the, the psalmist who writes this psalm and the person about whom the psalm is written, who, if you haven't guessed by now, it's Jesus Christ himself. He is the one about whom the psalm speaks. The psalm may have been written by David, but it's about David's son. In fact, David's son is the speaker in the psalm. You're actually reading a statement from the Son of God, the Son of David, about his triumph over the nations. And our response should be, give thanks to the Lord. This is an example of the Lord's undying, steadfast, covenant love. The psalm tells a story, just very briefly. Verses 10 through 13 tell, tells about a great warrior who is confronting his enemies, which are the nations of the earth. This, he says, I was surrounded by all the nations, not just one or two, all the nations were surrounding him. The battle is described as hard. They were like bees coming out of their beehive attacking me. They were, they were a swarm attacking. But the Lord gives victory. The battle is hard, but the Lord gives victory. The next section, verses 14 through 18, is a song of praise, a testimony about what happened during this battle, a testimony to the Lord for his goodness in giving victory to the king. And verses 19 through 28 tells the story of a triumphant procession to the temple. And there, this triumphant warrior king goes to give thanks and to worship the Lord. And he goes to the temple. In that triumphant procession of the temple, uh, there, there is that, that call to accompany him up to the, the altar, the horns of the altar. There is, uh, there is that procession. Now, the people uh, on the day of Christ's triumphant entry are actually reenacting the story of this psalm. They are doing so because they have become convinced that Jesus is this warrior king who is coming to his temple also reinforced by the imagery of him coming on a donkey, the, the cult of a donkey, and fulfilling biblical prophecy. There are some special notes in this psalm that we should call attention to. First of all, you'll see the repeated phrase, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off, the nations that were surrounding me, the enemies that surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. That's repeated several times. But it also contains this phrase, which is at the heart of our message. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does it mean to come in the name of the Lord? 
What does it mean to conquer, to overcome, and be victorious in the name of the Lord? A couple of things. We often use that expression, in the name of the Lord. Sometimes we say, in the name of the Lord, I bless you. I, uh, uh, in the name of the Lord, we, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, very simply, it means I'm doing this as a representative of the Lord. I am doing what, whatever it is I'm doing, I am doing it as God's representative, as, as a representative of Jehovah God Almighty. As his representative, I am also clothed with his authority and power. In the name of the Lord is a declaration that I am doing this under the authority of the Lord as his representative and with his power with his power. It may also indicate, of course, in, the, in this context, the one who comes in the name of the Lord has a very specific, ultimate meaning, and that is this. He is coming as the Messiah, as the Anointed One, as God's representative on earth. It's not the Pope. It's Jesus. How, how foolish is it of us to try to replace the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, with a mere human and call him the vicar, the representative of Christ? Anything, anything that diverts our attention, that diverts our affections from the Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, anything that raises itself up in competition with him is to be cast out of our minds and our hearts. He comes in the name of the Lord. He is acting under the authority of the Lord. He comes as God's representative. He comes as Messiah. There's also another special note here. Verse 22, there, there are a couple of places that, that are quoted in the New Testament. This is one of them. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is recorded that Jesus spoke these words about himself. He spoke these words about himself and his rejection by the Pharisees and by the, the leaders, the priests, and so forth of the people of Israel. The stone the builders rejected. They had set themselves up in Moses' seat to be teachers and, uh, as we would say today, influencers in Israel— they were the builders, but the, re, the, but the builders rejected the stone that God had given them, that God had cut out from the rock, that God had sent them as a living stone, Peter says. They rejected him, but he has become the cornerstone. Now, why stick this verse in the middle of the story of a triumphant return of a victorious king? 
because this king not only had enemies in the nations, but he was not well received by the builders. He was not honored by the builders, by the influencers, by the influential people, the teachers and the leaders. It's very important for us to remember this. Very often in the Gospel of John, John will refer negatively to the Jews and is almost always referring negatively to the leaders, the builders, the priests, the Pharisees, those who tried to, as Jesus said, sit in Moses' seat in a place of authority. Peter identifies Jesus as the stone in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which me, we must be saved. Peter actually has a longer explanation that I'm not going to read right now in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Verse 24 has another interesting line. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a, a verse we often use as a call to worship. It's a verse that I could have quoted today when I was talking to you about being happy, being rejoicing, and, and full of joy and thankfulness on, on a day of worship. This is the day the Lord has made. You could say this about any day. You could say it especially about the Lord's day. But in the context here, it has reference to the day of victory, the day of salvation. It is a day in which God made and God gave victory, and now the people come to be thankful, to give thanks for the victory that God has given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a day of salvation, a day of rejoicing, a day of victory. There will be a time, brothers and sisters, I think, when we will say certain things, certain Scripture passages will come to our minds, and we will be compelled to say these words out loud. One of them, one of those phrases is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But another one is this, and it will be the ultimate fulfillment of this verse this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We will say these words when that trumpet sounds. When the dead in Christ rise up, those who are alive will rise up together and meet them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Death will be conquered. Sin will be done. Victory, salvation rejoicing in the presence of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed is he who comes. This is the day the Lord has made. One of my goals in this message, brothers and sisters, is to communicate to you the great anticipation we should have for the coming of Jesus Christ. It transcends all the all the temporary problems of this age. It transcends the tragedies. We've, we've read this week of a tragedy that struck kind of close to us in one of our sister churches, a tragedy of evil. 
But there will be a day when victory is proclaimed. And we who trust in Christ will see that day and rejoice in it. Now, that's the first instance that we find these words in Psalm 18, written in the time of David, put in the book of Psalms, and clearly understood by the multitude of people as referring to the coming Messiah, the King, the, the Son of David. And then we, so we come to this time in, uh, in the life of Christ where he comes to Jerusalem. We read from John's account. We could also read from Matthew's account. Uh, actually, all the Gospels have an account of this triumphant arrival in Jerusalem. I'm just going to read uh, something very quickly from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, beginning at verse uh, 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna is a cry of salvation. Lord, save, save us, save us. That's, that's what it means. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Notice they've, they've got two of the three offices of Christ listed there, the king and the prophet. Priest is not there, but uh, I think they would have understood that as well. It is a fulfillment of prophecy. The arrival of Christ is a fulfillment of prophecy and identifies him as Jesus, the king of Israel, David's son. But there is something not quite right. What's the battle that this great warrior king is returning from? Well, you could say it's it's a battle with his enemies, with his critics. Now, that's not exactly what Psalm 118 is talking about. And why would he come on a donkey? Well, to fulfill prophecy, but why is that prophecy there? You know, that prophecy that is quoted in these passages from the Old Testament, I think is put there to show us that the story is not complete, that there are other things that need to happen. And yes, the prophecy is a way of identifying Jesus as Messiah, but the prophecy in and of itself, if, if, if you use the term that is popular today, the visuals that were involved in this prophecy tell us that the scene is not quite fitting the scene from Psalm 118. There's something else. The visual is that of humility. The psalm speaks of a conquering king. It's a clue that there is something more. And what is that more? The stone must be rejected. The stone that God has given must be rejected. And, he, and only as he is rejected will he become the capstone, the cornerstone, 
What does Paul say in the letter to the Ephesians about Jesus? He, the church, is founded upon the, is, is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Peter tells us that Jesus is a living stone, and he fulfills this prophecy or this statement in Psalm 118. And then he says, but you who trust in Jesus are also living stones who are being built together in God's church. See, the stone has to be rejected. The stone, Jesus, must go to the cross. And there he fulfills the priestly work of redemption, of atonement. He's proclaimed prophet, he's proclaimed king, but he will show himself also in a week's time to be the priest and to offer a sacrifice that truly atones for the sins of his people. There's also a third reference here, the future. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, Jesus has come to the city of Jerusalem. And they have, there's been this wild rejoicing scene of welcoming him. But just a little later, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is telling us there's yet a future time. Now, yes, Jerusalem will reject him. The leaders will reject him. The stone will be rejected. And Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem because he knows what is in store. Your house is left to you desolate. He will elaborate on that when he talks about the destruction of the temple, which takes place in 70 AD. He will talk about the, the destruction. Uh, he will pronounce the woes on the Pharisees he, and the, the scribes, the Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whited sepulchers clean, filthy tombs that have been cleaned up, sort of. But they're still filled with dead men's bones. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. After this triumphant entry where the people have been say, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus foretells his rejection and the destruction of Jerusalem, but he says, as often as the pattern throughout Scripture, that judgment is coming and punishment for wickedness is coming. The punishment for the, the unbelief of Israel is coming. 
But God, perhaps the most important two words in the Bible, but God, but God will bring salvation. But God will overcome. But God will come again. Jesus will come again. And the people will once again say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are actually three things that people will say. In Revelation 1, 7 through 8, the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming with the clouds. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then Jesus himself, the Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's a, that's a way of saying the, the authority of God stands behind this statement. Jesus will come with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now we're actually moving a little closer to that scene in Psalm 118, where in the name of the Lord, this messianic king cut off the nations of the earth. In Zechariah twelve ten, again looking to this time, the prophet writes, God writes through the prophet, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And we take these passages together. There's something yet coming. The king is coming again. And there will be different reactions to his coming. Some will weep and mourn. And in the passage in Zechariah 12, it it seems to be a, a, the effect of God pouring out on the house of David and the, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. That has an effect that when they look upon him whom they have pierced, they weep and mourn as for an only child. This only child has been taken from them. Actually, they're weeping and mourning because they realize that they have put their Messiah to death, that they have actually rejected their Messiah, and they will mourn and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, that there's an implication that in that weeping and mourning, there's an acknowledgment of their rejection and pleased for mercy, pleased for grace, that God has, God has given them the spirit to cry out for grace and mercy. And as a result of that, they recognize the one whom they've pierced and they weep bitterly for it. There's an implication, though, that they turn to him. I won't get into a great discussion on what God might have in store for the nation of Israel, but 
But this does seem to say that God is not finished with them. The nations, all the tribes of the earth will wail. Some will mourn and weep. Some will wail. They wail because with his coming comes their destruction. Remember Psalm 2, the kings of the earth rise up, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But what does God say? Well, first thing, he laughs. It's a ridiculous situation. He holds them in derision. And he says, kiss the son, lest I, may he be angry and you perish in the way. The son is coming back and he has vengeance with him. And the nations that rise up against him and fight against him will be defeated and they will wail because of him. Their cries are cries of pain, cries of terror, cries of fear, cries of defeat, cries of utter despair, because they have set themselves up against the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there will be some, Perhaps some from this first group that weeps for him bitterly as for an only son or an only child, there will be some who do what Jesus said back in Matthew 23. They will welcome him with those words of Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Christ returns, there will be these varied reactions. To the, to the return. So I'm going to ask you the great question that flows from this. What will you say on that day? What will you say on that day? That day is coming. It will be, to many people, completely unexpected. But we expect it. We're looking for it. We anticipate it. We anticipate it with joy and with thanksgiving. What will you say on that day? Will you wail because your rebellion against God has been exposed and you know what's ahead of you is eternal judgment to be cast out from the presence of God, cast into eternal punishment? Or will you cry out in joy? Blessed is he who comes. If you are in any doubt about that, if you are in any doubt about your expectations and your hopes and your faith in Christ and your acknowledgement that he is our only Lord and Savior, if you are in any doubt, please talk to me. Please seek out an elder, seek out, well, we only have one, so Matt, something else for you to do. Uh, seek out someone who knows Jesus. And let us, let us show you that he is the king, and he is the prophet, and he is the priest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that Jesus Christ the victorious king is coming again. We look forward to him. For many, it will be a day of terror. 
for many, it will day, be a day of victory and rejoicing. Father, we pray that you would solidify our faith. It is being tested in the world, but we know whom we have believed, and we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we have committed to him against that day. We pray, Father, that you would take the, the words of Scripture, encourage our hearts, fill us with a sense of awe at the majesty of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.